In seed time, learn. In harvest, teach. In winter, enjoy. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. The contemplative life is often miserable. We must act more, think less, and stop watching ourselves live. I'm Michael Coyle, professor of English at Colgate University in New York State. And I'm Alan Swenson, professor of German literature at Colgate University. And this is the, the second episode of our podcast series, Transatlantic Wisdom. And today we're going to be looking at German and American poets from the 18th century, from that period of European history that we remember as the Enlightenment a period of history that was so very much about the cultivation of reason. It was a project that didn't ultimately work very well. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that comes through in the quotations with which we began, too. The idea that a scholarly approach to life is not always the most uh, fruitful one, that it misses out on key aspects of the complexity of what we are and what life is. Yeah. So in our first episode, we talked about, principally, we talked about Friedrich Nietzsche's cultivation of a new form of wisdom literature. Nietzsche talked about the aphorism. And we talked about one of the great American inheritors of Nietzsche's sort of formal and uh, I'll just say philosophical uh, innovations, the American poet Wallace Stevens. So there we were talking about how this, this aphoristic form turns on paradox and antithesis. It would seem to be a statement of wisdom, but instead of leaving you absolutely certain of where you stood, it problematizes the ground under our feet. Today, we're going to be looking at literature that attempted a very different kind of project, this Enlightenment project, this attempt to produce self-evident propositions where you read it and you just think, true that. I think we may need to revise that a little, Michael, because I think these we're already at a point in the 18th century that these writers are not writing things they think are self-evident. Well, maybe then we'd better start with, with Alexander Pope, who did. <laughs> um, well, we can, we can. In any case, uh, I think we want to start maybe just to, to remind everybody that uh, with Nietzsche's contentions about his chosen form, his preferred form, because he acknowledges in the preface to his late work, The Genealogy of Morality, which he, by the way, referred to as a touchstone of everything that was his. Mm. He says that if you find it difficult to read, one reason is that the aphoristic form creates a difficulty, and I'm quoting here now, it lies in the fact that we don't attach enough weight to this form today. An aphorism honestly coined and cast has not been deciphered simply because it has been read through. Rather, its interpretation must now begin and for this, an art of interpretation is needed. 
I love that quotation. What a great introduction to, to Nietzsche in general, I think. Interpretation. So the aphorism is an, is an instigation, right? Begin interpreting, not, not just passively reading. So what we're going to be looking at today are, in large part, the writers that Nietzsche built on. He wasn't familiar with Blake for reasons that no Michael will explain. <laughs> <laughs> but other writers uh, a generation or so before him, actually I suppose more than a generation before him, had already been writing in an aphoristic form. They didn't call it that necessarily, and those who did didn't necessarily use them the way Nietzsche did. But I think they help us get at the tradition out of which he's writing and the growing recognition that that any knowledge of the mo of the world from our modern perspective is bound to be complex uh, and not open to neat, clear uh, statements. You know, Alan, one of the things that I admire most about Nietzsche, and this is something that, that you've had a lot to say about, is that he had very little interest in abstract thinking for its own sake. Nietzsche was always interested in how writing can serve life, how it can, can guide, inspire, instigate action. That's there in the title of one of his very first pamphlets, right? The advantage and disadvantage of history for life is how it's usually translated into English. It's also one of the reasons that philosophers for a long time ignored him, as, as a philosopher friend once explained to me. It's too much like Psychology, the difference between psychology and philosophy is that psychology is about ideas in life as opposed to clear abstractions of them. And, and that's what Nietzsche, you're right, had no patience for. Yeah, well, it's one of the many things I love about his work, right? So if we think of this as a not so much an opposition, but as a kind of continuum, right? This, this scale. At, at one end, we have the maxim the self-evident proposition. And we'll look at a couple of really good examples of that in, in just a moment. And on the other hand, we've got this, this modernist, this what some people call anti-foundationalist impulse in Nietzsche, anti-foundationalist, that is problematize the ground under your feet rather than give you a basis for confidence and certainty. So today we're going to be looking at these 18th century examples and Alan, let's let's start with Alexander Pope, because I think you you're absolutely right that by the time that you you get to the the twilight of the Enlightenment, the French Revolution and everything after, the the project, well, it becomes more complicated, doesn't it? So here is something from Alexander Pope's essay on criticism, and it, it's called an essay, but it was actually a poem, and this is published in 1711. So by this point, the Enlightenment had been underway for, I don't know, probably 30 years. And uh, let, me, let me read a stanza, and then I'll, I'll highlight the four lines that I think are, are really useful for us in this episode. Some to conceit alone their taste confine, and glittering thoughts struck out at every line, pleased with a work where nothing's just or fit, one glaring chaos and one wild heap of wit. Poets, like painters, thus unskilled to trace the naked nature and the living grace, with gold and jewels cover every part and hide with ornaments 
their want of art, right? They, they create this flowery language because they don't really have the, the art to capture the truth correctly. And here's the, the famous passage. True wit is nature to advantage dressed. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed, something whose truth convinced at sight we find that gives us back the image of our mind, right? What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. And here's the, this is almost a definition of a maxim. Something whose truth convinced at sight we find, like you read it and on first sight, you recognize that this is true. I think that would also be problematic for Nietzsche in that uh, it's getting at what oft was thought as if somehow the most important ideas are things all of us have thought at some point or other, or many yeah. of us. Yeah, right. So Pope, and, and at least in English, the writers of that period, you know, Dryden, Swift, all of them, and and there's an American example of going we're going to in a, in a moment, right? Benjamin Franklin, that somehow common sense is a good is a good thing, a cultivated thing that's available to us just by thinking rationally. If we think rationally, we might anticipate that we can all share the same perception of truth. That confidence is gone by Nietzsche's day. That confidence is gone by Wallace Stevens' day. And I think it's gone well before that, that he, even uh, in... The century before Nietzsche, as you were mentioning, the sort of Enlightenment thinkers that, or I, I should say, I think you called it too, that even by the time the Enlightenment is kind of reaching its peak, it's already finding its detractors. And, and among them were the, the Romantics in Germany, who were convinced that the problem with the Enlightenment was that it was focused too much, too solely on reason mm -hmm. and ignored the irrational in humans. And one of the early practitioners of something like the aphorism was one of these uh, early romantic writers in Germany, Friedrich Schlegel. And he didn't publish aphorisms, but he did publish what he called fragments. And I think that that idea gets at what is beginning, is going to interest Nietzsche too. The idea that um, any knowledge that really matters to us is not something that we can bring together in a nutshell and package the whole thing neatly that it's going to be problematic. I don't believe that Nietzsche spent much time working with Schlegel. I doubt he was a, a tremendous influence on him, but he was aware of him. And it, it's interesting that Schlegel did, I think, anticipate bits of what Nietzsche was getting at. And I'll just read one of his fragments that I think is useful here. Mm. He wrote in the 1790s, it is equally deadly for the spirit to have a system and to have none. The spirit will thus have to resolve to combine both. And I think what he, in a way what he's getting at here, you and I have talked this through before. One of the, the images that, that we've discussed and one that I like very much is this oft-told story from various cultures of the blind men being introduced to an elephant. And so... Each of them touches the elephant, and one of them says, oh, I see, you know, I get it. An elephant is like a pillar, having touched the leg. Or mm -hmm. <laughs> an elephant is like a great fan, having touched the ear. Or an elephant is like a rope, having grabbed onto the tail, etc. You get the idea. And each of them has some kind of a correct insight, but they're all 
partial. They're all incomplete. None of them get the concept of the elephant as a whole. And I think that Schlegel was getting at that with his fragments. And for Nietzsche as well, it's the idea that this is true of all human knowledge, that none of us ever grasped the really key things in life in their entirety. You know, the, this um, late Enlightenment, early Romantic fascination with fragments, I mean, it's all over the, the painting of that period. Think of Fuseli's uh, engravings of the, this human figure sitting on the, the foot of a shattered colossus from antiquity, weeping over, you know, her own insignificance compared to the greatness of the past. The Romantics loved fragments. Poets like, like Byron started publishing poems in fragments. Coleridge's poem, Kubla Khan, pretended to be a, a great vision that was disturbed by ordinary life, and the poet couldn't recover anything more than fragments. But the idea was that the fragment contains in it the truth of the whole if we learn to read it right. I think that's an, an, an interesting harbinger of what's to come with Nietzsche and the modernists a century later. But I wanted to ask you a question about the, the Schlegel quotation that you shared with us. Would you repeat it? Would you say it again? Sure. It is equally deadly for the spirit to have a system and to have none. It will thus have to resolve to combine both. So what I want to ask you, Alan, it's easy enough for us to understand why he'd be suspicious of a system, right? It's going to limit you. You're only going to be able to think in, in you know, terms of that system. But it is it worth, you know, pausing over in, in what ways it might be healthy or valuable to have a system? This will come up again when we look at one of the other writers that, that Nietzsche admired from this period, Georg Christoph Lichtenberg. A system is necessary. Lichtenberg liked to write down his ideas when they occurred to him. And he wrote them down. He even used an English term for it, the waste book to capture the idea, and, and he'd come back to it later and rework them into more coherent wholes. Um, and he called these things aphorisms. In a way, he's working toward a system, the idea that these individual ideas by themselves aren't worth very much if you can't begin to collect them and show their connectedness among themselves. So I do think, yes, there's a great deal that's positive about a system. You have to work towards synthesizing your ideas recognizing where they're related, where they're connected. And Nietzsche certainly believed mm -hmm. that too. He just believed that that's the work that has to be kept. Part of the work that the reader does, part of the work that is always ongoing, that you never finish. And hence, write your ideas down as aphorisms, highly polished ideas that are problematic and can be put next to other aphorisms. And if you take all of them seriously, you begin to work perhaps toward a systematic understanding. I don't know if you remember in Genealogy of Morality, he says at one point that philosophers have no right to be single in anything. And I think that's the idea he's getting at, is that if your idea is out there and not related to anything else, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> but the danger of the system then is that you don't sit calmly and tolerate the contradictions in the ideas you're finding that you rush to synthesize them. And among his contemporaries, he had a problematic relationship with Charles Darwin and his contemporaries, but he really disliked one of Darwin's uh, peers, Herbert Spencer, for that very reason, 
that he saw in Spencer, somebody who rushed to force all the data to fit his system mm -hmm. um, and thereby overlooked or suppressed things that didn't fit the system. But to have no system at all would be to stay like the blind men grasping around the elephant to think that an elephant is like a pillar. <laughs> I think that's really helpful. And it would be useful to remember all through this, this conversation, the, the passage that you read from the, the preface to Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morality. An aphorism, honestly, coin and cast has not been deciphered, quote unquote, simply because it's been read through an art of interpretation is needed. So as I think about we're, we're about to, to go to William Blake, the English poet William Blake. But Blake, like Nietzsche, and, and like some of the other thinkers that we're, we'll be talking about, he wanted a powerful, all-encompassing vision. But he thought of it in organic terms rather than in systematic terms. And rather than, rather than truth being a kind of deduction you know, that's achieved through various successive logical steps, he's looking for a kind of epiphany, you know, a sudden, powerful, almost overwhelming revelation of, of truth. And I, that's part of why I was asking about the Schlegel. I don't know Schlegel's work well enough to know where he would come down in, in, in this process. I think there's a reason probably why Nietzsche doesn't do more with him. And it, it is that Schlegel remains in kind of a philosophical, theoretical sphere that isn't easily tied back to life. And I think that that does matter very much so for Nietzsche. Schlegel's one of the most important theorists of early German Romanticism, but is not, a, not an easily accessible thinker. And it's not that Nietzsche thinks thinkers should be easily accessible, but at least uh, right. if you work hard at it, it should be. And, and I, in the end, I think what's difficult about Nietzsche is not his language, it's, his, it's what you got at in Pope. Nietzsche's thinking thoughts that have not been often thought, and as a, as a matter of fact, maybe most people have never even considered them before. And it's sometimes actually kind of unsettling to consider them. How about often unsettling to consider them? <laughs> hmm? You know, truth isn't necessarily going to make you happy. It's certainly not going to make you more comfortable. Yeah. Um, that's not the goal. Whereas the, the Pope quotation that we are pausing over, truth, who, something whose truth convinced at sight we find that gives us back the image of our mind, that gives us back the image of our mind. I'm not entirely confident that I can read that except through a 21st century lens. But it, it, it suggests that if a poet or a writer successfully captures truth, it'll be, as you were just saying, show us something that we've already known. So from there, and I, I'm sorry, I, I hope I wasn't chuckling too loud as you were talking about Nietzsche, because that's such a, an important part of what I love about his writing. But it's, it's here too in William Blake. So William Blake is, a, is an English poet. He was writing in that period that we think of as the Enlightenment. 
what Blake tended to do was to turn enlightenment forms, turn literary forms that were basically all about the presentation of rational process and turn them against themselves. So the, the book that I thought we'd focus on today is called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Blake worked on this book for three years. He worked on it between 1790 and 1793. And it's an illuminated manuscript. That is, Blake hand engraved every page of the work. And the lines of poetry are, are typically engraved inside some image of you know, divine figures meeting the human, any, any number of things. But Blake was deeply suspicious of the printed page. He thought regular type was an example of what he called satanic mills, you know, this forcing of, of life into regular forms. So the marriage of heaven and hell begins with something that Blake calls the argument. And readers of, say, John Milton's Paradise Lost will recognize that, that term, right? Every one of the books of Paradise Lost begins with a short prose redaction of what's going to happen in that book. It's kind of crazy, like no modern poet would ever do this, right? But if we know what's going to happen in the book, Milton reasoned, we could then enjoy the poetry more and, and feel its power, right? The, 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 the poetry makes palatable and uncomfortable truth. Well, in Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, the argument is the only part of the book that's in poetic form. The rest of it is prose statements. So right from the get-go, Blake turns everything on its head. And so what I was, was reading at the start of this podcast were the first four lines of a section of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell that Blake called perversely, humorously, the Proverbs of Hell. In seed time, learn. In harvest, teach. In winter, enjoy. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Just one thing more. For Blake, the marriage of heaven and hell represents the, the marriage of, of body and soul. And marriage is the magic word for Blake because it's this one human experience where he thought, body and soul have the, have the best opportunity to come together, right? Sexuality for, for Blake was the ultimate expression of our, of our humanity, right? It's both physical and, at least when it's good, spiritual. So hell represents energy, not the eternal torments of Christian scripture. And Blake thought of himself not so much as a poet, but as a prophet. He expected that the Bible was an open book, that if you read the Bible correctly, it would inspire you to write your own book rather than bend your knee in subservience to, to the work of another prophet. How Nietzschean is that? <laughs> the first part just sounds like conventional wisdom. In seed time, learn. In harvest, teach. In winter, enjoy. We could get that from Ben Franklin, right? But then the next line, drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. Right? What? <laughs> 
But what he, he means is it's life that matters and, and not simply reverence to the dead. And then the third line, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And that would seem an absolute refusal of, I forget where the Greek, the Greek aphorism about um, nothing in excess comes from. Mm-hmm. He's saying, no, excess leads to wisdom. Now, how do these three lines go together? They don't have any kind of narrative sense. But there's a progression starting from what would seem common sense to what seems a, a perverse inversion of common sense. I do like the, uh, as you pointed out, that switch in the second line to something that at least stops us in our tracks in a way that is suggesting that what matters here is is life. Yeah. Not the dead. Yeah. That definitely is an idea that Nietzsche, Nietzsche is going to pick up on and ca- cares a great deal about. Right. What we were saying earlier, that for Nietzsche, if it doesn't serve life, leave it alone. Maybe before we go deeper into Blake, I mentioned Ben Franklin a moment ago, and I know, Alan, that, that you're sort of interested in Franklin. Let's let's look at, at what he does. I would say that, that what we get from Ben Franklin, right, the American, talk about a Renaissance man, he did everything. He conducted science experiments, he was a politician, he was a writer. But I think also he's in some ways a sort of classic Enlightenment figure. Yeah, very, very much so. Do you want to read a few of his his uh, proverbs or maxims? Something from a Poor Richard's Almanac, maybe? <laughs> so, any example that I can think of has that quality that Pope was looking for. Like, as soon as you read it, you recognize, you know, you recognize its truth. He that lies down with dogs shall rise up with fleas. Franklin advises in Poor Richard's Almanac, <laughs> right? Don't throw stones at your neighbors if your own windows are glass. In, a, in a America, at least, that's, that particular maxim has all kinds of versions, right? <laughs> the one I remember from my school is people who live in glass houses should dress in the basement, but that's not... Um, don't throw stones at your neighbors if your own windows are glass. We can understand what that means immediately, right? And it fits, it fits very well, too, with Pope again, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Um, so, in fact, it gets often thought, and uh, people keep trying to express it in various forms. Yeah. Hey, I'll just offer one more. There never was a good war or a bad peace. That's something that Franklin originally put in a letter. But Franklin's letters were sort of famous for containing these these little wisdom bits, right? And people would pass them around. You know, he would, Franklin was sort of made for the internet, wasn't he? (laughs) But so the kind of thing that that we see there in Ben Franklin or Alexander Pope has already come into question with William Blake, even before the 18th century is over. I think it also anticipates, I I can see why Franklin would not have been a, a, useful thinker for, for Nietzsche, that I think Nietzsche's response to there never was a good war or a bad peace would uh, be to reach back to one of his favorite Greek philosophers, 
uh, Heraclitus, war is the father of all things. Yeah, which which is which gets at the at the what one of the things you've liked so much about the Nietzschean aphorism is the way it gets us thinking by pointing out a paradox that yes, indeed, I think it, uh, even on the surface we all can easily understand war is a bad thing. Uh, so let's throw in there that war is the father of all things. Yeah. What do we do with that? You know, the, the comments that you were reading to us uh, a few minutes ago from Schlegel about systems, I imagine that, you know, Ben Franklin, who, you know, had so much to say in the, in the course of America's framing of its constitution, he wouldn't have had a problem with the system, but Blake sure did. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a curious thing about William Blake. He was utterly unknown in his own day. He had a, a rich patron who collected Blake's illuminated manuscripts, each one of which was intended to look distinct from any other copy. But Blake was utterly unknown in the 18th century, in the 19th century. The first modern edition of Blake, an edition that's problematic from our point of view because it didn't include the illuminations, it was just the text, was edited by the Irish poet William Butler Yeats in the early 20th century. Blake then is really kind of a modern figure, and that's probably just as well. I don't think he he would have stayed out of jail if his writings had been known in his own day. Sometimes they were politically seditious. They were often, by the standards of conventional Christian morality, immoral. Uh, but Blake was being true to his own vision. That that varies very much a Nietzschean stance that I know you you like very much his earlier writings that are gathered together in a book called uh, Variously Untimely Meditations. Uh, yeah. And Nietzsche himself was not taken seriously as a philosopher until the century after his death. He and Blake have that in common. Yes, and what, what 21st century readers of Nietzsche have to contend with are all the, the misapprehensions of his work that were popularized in the early 20th century. And something similar, Alan, happens with Blake. So the the first academic scholars of Blake busied themselves with trying to figure out what all of these biblical-sounding names that show up in Blake's poetry really meant. Blake often names prophets like Ezekiel and numbers himself among them. But, for instance, the marriage of heaven and hell in that, that argument that, that we were talking about Famously begins, Rintra roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. And so you, you read that and you think, well, wait, who the heck is Rintra? Well, the poem never tells you. And it doesn't matter. But what tripped up early scholars was they were trying to figure this out, right? Because all, all literary scholars are trained to be hermeneutics, right? They're trained to search for meaning. Yeah. And they wanted to impose a system on Blake that Blake himself would have laughed at because Blake kept changing his mind. What would you say about that? Did, did, did Blake have a system in mind? I don't think he did. I think what Blake was interested in was the act of creation. Yeah. What Blake was interested in is imagination as a living force. This is making us an... I- oh, sorry, please finish that. Well, I was just going to say, finally, what, what Blake wanted is something very close to what, what Nietzsche talks about in the preface to the genealogy of morality. That is, he expected that his works would need to be interpreted. 
So for instance, when you're talking about one of Blake's illuminated poems, we don't talk about pages, we talk about plates, right? Because they're, en they're engraved, right? So here's the first line on plate eight from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. And you, you can't just read that and say, true that. It's meant to put you off your balance, maybe offend you. But the idea is that if you, if you wrestle with it, instead of reading it passively, it might take you somewhere that you hadn't been able to get to before. The reason I asked that question of whether he had a system or not is that I find these predecessors historically interesting as ways of trying to see where it is that Nietzsche is going. And in a way, this brings us back to that idea of Schlegel, that it is equally deadly for the spirit to have a system and have no system. And with Nietzsche, in any case, he's often, I think, seen as an iconoclast, as somebody who breaks the idols we love to worship. But in fact, he does care very much about bringing it back to some organized attempt to understand human life. Mm. So you mentioned the scholars reading Blake. I think Nietzsche, that's where he saw the problem, is that the scholars usually take the life out of things. <laughs> what, what, what he understands as a scholar. So we st you yeah. start to see this. Schlegel has this great idea of system and no system, but I don't think Nietzsche found or would have found life in him. So the authors he turns to instead maybe pull Blake and Schlegel together in a sense that one of his favorite writers was the one that I began our episode today with from a Frenchman, Nicolas Chamfort. Nietzsche was mm -hmm. very admired very much. Um, I'll, I'll read it again just to refresh your memory. The contemplative life is often miserable. We must act more, think less, and stop watching ourselves live. I think he gets here. He says it's often miserable. He doesn't want to say it's always miserable. That he, he, like Nietzsche, I think has a tremendous admiration for intellectual accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But it has to be kept in proportion to life somehow. It has to be brought back to that. And that's something that the scholar, I think, Nietzsche, likewise in his writings, the scholar is never a positive figure. Well, let's face it, scholars are almost never positive figures in pop culture either. <laughs> but when you when you quoted the, the Chamfort for us, we must act more, think less, and stop watching ourselves live. I'm I'm sorry I can't help it. This must be an old guy thing, but I I, I think of all these people capturing every single thing they do on their phones. And you think you're spending so much time doing that, you're not actually in the moment. Blake would have hated that. Yeah. And I, 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 I imagine Nietzsche would too. Nietzsche would too. I think Nietzsche would have hated reality TV. <laughs> Here's a rabbit hole I'm going to struggle not to go down. One of the other key figures in, in this early period for Nietzsche was a physicist at the University of Göttingen, Georg Christoph Lichtenberg. I mentioned his name a bit earlier. And he ties us in. I suppose in a couple of ways. He also admired Ben Franklin. Um, he was a, he was an Anglophile, spent a fair amount of time in England, and his writings are filled with 
maybe not transatlantic, because at that point in time, I think he really took England seriously and probably the fledgling United States, not, not so much. But he also reflects what you're talking about here, this concern about a difference between intellectual, scholarly intellectual work and something that goes beyond that. One, one of the, uh, I, I don't know if I can call this an aphorism, it's, it's from his miscellaneous writings that Nietzsche copied it down in his notebooks. And he wrote, this is Lichtenberg, I believe some of the greatest spirits that ever lived had read half as much and didn't know as much by far as many of our mediocre scholars. And many of our very mediocre scholars could have become greater men if they hadn't read so much. I like, I like that a lot, actually. But I, I see what you mean. It's also interesting, too, that Lichtenberg wrote aphorisms, and oddly enough, Nietzsche doesn't quote any of them. He quotes from his later writings. And I think this gets at this evolution of what an aphorism is. For Lichtenberg, an aph the things he called aphorism were his jottings in his notebooks. And, and he then takes those jottings and he sorts them, he works them through, he brings them into contact with each other. For Nietzsche, what he thought of as the aphorism was that later finished product where he had brought ideas together, but he wants you to understand that that's one idea, one perspective that is highly polished perhaps now, but it's not meant to be taken as the end point. It's the end point of my publishing, but not the end point of our thinking about it. That's a really important idea to this development that we're tracing. There is no end point, right? Alan, I'm, I'm also, there's another line from Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell that I wonder, talk just for a minute, what do you think Nietzsche would have made of this? The last of the Proverbs of Hell reads, truth can never be told so as to be understood and not be believed. Truth can never be told so as to be understood and not be believed. The first part of that, that proposition would seem to be self-evident. Oh, the truth is so profound, we can never really understand it, right? I mean, basic Christianity proposes that. But it's, it's after the comma, and not be believed. Yeah, I've, I've long been puzzled by that second part. I don't know if you, what sense you make of that. Well, for our purposes right now, I want to say, this is another one of those moments where I, I see the writers of the Romantic era begin to approach Nietzsche and the moderns. Because you read this, and it's not immediately clear. At least when I read it, I think, okay, yeah. But then, like you, I'm paused. Like, he gives you something that you're ready to embrace, but then puts this little twist at the end where all of a sudden the whole thing is problematized. What's that even mean? Mm -hmm. Truth can never be told so as to be understood and not be believed. So there's clearly a tension between understanding and belief, right? Mm -hmm. But so the, the form of the thing more or less, I'll say, compels us to interpret. But of course, readers don't have to do anything. They can simply quit reading. 
And that's one of the gambles that writers in this Nietzschean tradition take. Nietzsche risks a lot. He doesn't pretend to write for everyone. The very way that he writes makes that inconceivable. I think that is something that that brings Blake and Nietzsche into proximity too, is that both of them write a kind of prose that could be appreciated or loved just because it sounds so great. And (laughs) Nietzsche, in any case, would have been very disappointed if that's what happened with his writing, is that he, his... um, explosive uh, language. He, he described himself as philosophizing with a hammer. It was meant to, <laughs> to make us think and, yeah. and to not just read, to do what he, he demands of us with the aphorism, that you don't just read it through. That That's where you get started is after you've read it through. Now you've got to start working it out, figuring out a, what's going on in this aphorism? But aphorisms are always published in collections. So where are the resonances between this aphorism and the ones with which it is grouped? Mm-hmm. And that's where we start to move in the direction of a system, I believe, with Nietzsche. But the important thing is, is that you don't rush to system. That you let the aphorisms stand there in their contradictoriness take the contradiction seriously. Do you think system is, and this is a genuine question, I'm not trying to lead you anywhere. Do you think system is the right word for what Nietzsche was doing? I think if you take it in in Schlegel's sense, probably yes, that I think it's what he's hinting at. It's It's kind of funny, and I think Nietzsche would enjoy the fact that you and I can find it funny. Probably uh, people will laugh at us uh, for being amused by highly scholarly things, but I don't think Nietzsche meant it that way. In the genealogy of morality, perhaps his masterwork, in any case, he chooses as the titles for the sections, they're not chapters and they're not books, he calls them treatises. Uh, This is a translation Mm -hmm. of the German Abhandlung, which is even etymologically connected. And I think the reason he does it is that he wants to evoke this idea of a systematic presentation of something, that a treatise is precisely what scholars have used as their way of presenting systematically some body of knowledge. But the funny part of it is then that the content of these treatises doesn't look like a treatise at all. Nope. Um, It's not calm scholarly language. Nietzsche roams across the spectrum in terms of of styles and registers of language he uses. Sometimes it sounds biblical, sometimes it it, uh, sounds like gutter language, sometimes sometimes it is philosophical, but Mm -hmm. I think all of it is meant to sort of keep us on our toes, keep us from settling into some easy perspective. From, From taking comfort in what we think we already know. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. (laughs) But you know, in Pope's case, to go back to where we started, and I realize we're running out of time and probably need to wrap up here, but you know, in in Pope's world, a reader would would read something like Essay on Criticism, and you know, you pause to admire the wit, the cleverness, the intelligence of the poet, Mm -hmm. and you think, oh, he nailed it. 
But you're not going to do that with Nietzsche or Wallace Stevens or even a century before William Blake. It's troubling. Yeah. And you feel that there's something there, but you're not quite sure what that something is. But then you and I can read the same passage and come to quite distinct conclusions about what it means. Now, of course, there are incorrect understandings of this kind of writing are not only possible, but common, frankly. It's part of the risk that you take in writing this way. But the fact of the matter is, no one can read a book like The Genealogy of Morality or even The Marriage of Heaven and Hell without investing a lot of energy in the reading so that inevitably their understanding of the book is, is going to be a function of their perspective. Well said. So how, how do you think that we should sum up here? I was just wondering that myself, that <laughs> in, a, in a way, that's, that's exactly the question. It's much easier to sum things up. A, another writer I like to think was uh, very much influenced by, grew out of sort of this understanding that we see in Nietzsche's aphorism was Virginia Woolf, who bege beginning of oh, her yeah. A Room of One's Own lets her audience know that they will not be able to take away a drop of distilled truth oil or whatever at the end of this uh, to set on their mantelpiece. That's the difficulty of working with these kind of writers. We would like to come up with a wonderful, neat conclusion, but in part what they're asking us not to do is that, to stay open. So in any case, we are open to continuing in this conversation Going back more to where we started last week, which is looking at writers in our contemporary time or between Nietzsche and us now who pick up on this, who are trying to get us to think more thoughtfully, more slowly about the crucial things we think about, either mm -hmm. in Nietzsche's sense through philosophical aphorisms or in Stephen's sense through philosophical poetry. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that in your, your closing here, you mentioned Virginia Woolf, because next time we're going to talk about two women, the German writer Maria von Ebner Eschenbach and the contemporary American writer Sarah Manguso. I hope you all will come back and join us. We look forward to it. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Did we sound like we knew what we were talking about? <laughs> <laughs>